Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. And so today, we were just talking about somebody we know and love. Actually, neither one of us has or can afford his amps, but we were talking no about Dumble. <laughs> so <laughs> please continue, Dave, because I know it was oh. about to get animated. <laughs> All right. So I, I the Dumble sound, right? Uh. Now, let's start, let's, let's, let's start the root of this whole thing. So if you don't know who du- Howard Alexander Dumble is... Um, He's basically a guy that started hand-building amplifiers in the late 70s, early 80s. Actually, from, from my understanding, he started out modifying amplifiers in the yes. back of a shop somewhere in California. Um, and he was modifying fenders and giving them extra gain stages and making them really good. Now, to understand Dumble, you got to kind of back up and look at the industry a little bit at the time. So at that time, um, Fender was not putting out good amplifiers. Mesa Boogie had just started. The Mark One was kind of starting to get like a – a little bit of um, uh, toehold in the marketplace, and people were getting interested in smaller builders. Uh, there was another uh, a company, um, just like uh, Mesa at that time, through uh, Bonnie Rate used them. I forget, I forget what they were called. Oh yeah, yeah. I... You know what I'm talking about? Yep, yep. And believe they, it or not, PV they... was doing big stuff back then. That was Leonard Skinner was using PV. Thirty Eight Special mm-hmm. was using PV. So, yeah. Yep. Okay. So. To put in perspective, people were kind of taking a, a break from the the English stuff and starting to try, kind of turn their their eyes back towards American amplifiers and what they had to offer. Yeah. So in comes Howard Dumble, who is um, modifying. Uh, he's modifying basically Fender amps. Uh, I can say pretty much anything I want about him with impunity, uh, save for maybe getting sued by him, uh, because basically he's a recluse. Nobody really knows him uh, to the point where they can get on the phone with him, save for a very few select group of people. Um, his whole shtick was, I'm going to build amplifiers for a specific player. And in order for Al- Howard Alexander Dumble to build an amplifier for you, you had to be on his I like your playing list. Um, various players have ended up on that list over the years. Um, the, the two notables, of course, Robin Ford, Larry Carlton, uh, Steve Ray Vaughan had one. Uh, the list goes on. There's a lot of people that have had different styles of dumbbells. And basically, there are two models. There's the steel string stinger, or is it singer? And then there's yep. the uh, the uh, overdrive special, which is pretty much the one that most people have. Um, I am a particularly I, I I like the the overdrive special sound, quote unquote. Um, that's because every amp that he builds is basically different for the player. But I think there's some common DNA between amps, and you can kind of get it um, uh, a feel for what the amps are capable of from listening to various tracks and stuff they recorded with them. Um, I've never been in the room with, eh, I may have been in the room with a double at Chicago music exchange at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, they, we talk about unobtainable gear, uh, $150,000 for an amplifier, yep. um, which is reportedly what some of them have gone for on the used market. Yep. It's pretty nuts. And that's happened because there's really only about two or three hundred of them in existence, and it's over a hundred thousand so, dollars just to get your amp um, from him. And, it, yeah, and it's no, been so, known that he's kept amps for seven to nine years just to do mods. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a pretty um, that's a pretty common thing that's been talked about. So here's my problem with Dumble. 
You're a complete recluse. You don't really want – he has – there is video of him on YouTube, which is strange. Uh, he was doing a thing for Henry Kaiser. If, if you're not familiar with Henry Kaiser, I suggest if, if you uh, are interested, get, get a nice cup of coffee, get some, get some Irish whiskey. Mm-hmm. Get get really drunk and listen to some Henry Kaiser because uh-huh. uh, that's the only way that his music is going to make sense. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'm not saying whether it's good or bad. I'm saying you have to experience Henry Kaiser in a certain way. But anyway, he's good buddies with uh, Dumble, and Dumble actually appeared in a in an educational video he did back in the '80s, and oh, really? that's on YouTube. You can watch that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Dumble is kind of the the um, South Parky uh, idea of like. What these amp builders like? He's nerdy. He's a big, heavy set guy. Um, he does not like to talk to people. He doesn't like to be involved in the music industry, other than to every once in a while give somebody a phone call, and you know, call him up and be like, "Hey, come out to my house. I, I want to build you an amp." And yeah. then you come out there and you think, "Oh, you know, what an honor! He's going to build me an amp." You're sitting there thinking, like, ah, "I'm not going to have to pay for this, right? Because it's an honor." No, you're going to pay for it. And then he tells you the price and. From a couple of people I've read about who have been quoted on Dumble Amps, and you don't know whether any of this stuff is true because, again, everybody wants to say that, that Dumble has approached them. Yep. Um, people have said that you know he oh well, the price of my amps is now a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. For, j- just to get started. Yeah. And, I, I uh, think what, it's I think it's a base price of ninety thousand just to have a modification done. And uh, he I, does, I've heard anywhere from forty to ninety, and yeah, I guess and, he could got a jcm 800 and turned one into a dumble yeah and what i guess he does is he seals it with some kind of like plastic he he dips it into yeah he uses epoxy an epoxy so that if you break it open he can sue you <laughs> for doing it yeah he's got the, the guy the guy is his information is completely proprietary but the funny thing is so if there's really tone voodoo going on here if he's got some sort of um, patent and and by the way I'll, I'll get more into this too if he's got some sort of patent approved process of hey here's my amplifier I've given it the voodoo yep. that I'm not going to tell anybody about and yep. why doesn't he why doesn't he patent it number one number two is people have taken the epoxy off they know yes. what's underneath it's yes. basically just real fine component selection Yep. and so yeah okay great but why are you going to such lengths to keep other people from doing it I mean, yeah, okay, so you could clone a Dumble. Big deal. Like, the reality is it's not a Dumble. It still doesn't have your seal of approval on it. <clears> your <throat> the, legendary ear. Well, you would think with the amount of money that he that he charges and can charge for an amplification and a modification, um, or amplifier and modification, he could turn that into a huge, huge amount of money income-wise. But because it takes him so long, and I'm not sure really, I'm not remembering what the process or reason for his process being taking so long. It's actually him, not anything to do with the process. It's not like he's Kevin Equitz or, or um, uh, yeah, those guys like out he, there drying wood. We're talking about an amplifier. We're yeah. talking about an amplifier. We're, we're talking basically about talking about, <laughs> yeah, solder, uh, electrical components, yep. uh, a good set of ears to hear what's coming out the the other end and basically speakers and then you got a box yeah okay and here's where i take issue with double okay yes i can make fun of him i've been making fun of him for a good portion of this discussion <laughs> uh the Dumble is one of these guys like i i truly do respect his work right look the guy has made a very unique sounding amplifier that's used in a lot of pros hands who will not use anything else yep or if they do it's only as a backup uh 
So obviously he's got something going on. But here's the deal. When you when you build an amplifier for somebody and it takes you eight months to build it, okay? Yep. Eight months is fine. I can see that. But you've got no other project going on because you're extremely exclusive. So why would it take you eight months? Right. Also, why would you put it in somebody else's cabinet? He's done that before where he'll yeah. take wood from some other cabinet and put it together and say, oh, well, this wood's special. So I'm going to put my speakers in it. I'll put this amp in it, and I'm going to send it out to, to uh, Santana. Right, you know? right. It's just – it's nuts. Yeah. It's psychotic. Yep. Look, I can get – I can go to somebody else who has taken apart several of his amplifiers nowadays. Um, I, it was at Fargan, I think, is one of the guys that's done it. Um, there's, some, there's some other ones too. Fuchs. Um, yep. They've all done it. They've all built derivative products. Mm -hmm. uh, Two Rock has done it. I think Saldano – didn't Saldano do that for a while too? Didn't they do some derivatives? I wouldn't be surprised if they haven't made a, a copy. Everybody's made a copy now, yeah. uh, it, either in concept or in what it actually does. Right. Um, and, for and, people, and for people who don't know what was the uh, originator of this, we were talking about Line 6 and how um, they were sued by some amplifier um, manufacturers for using their names as the uh, models, so they had to yeah, remove they, them and they, call them like American Classic. And well, okay, yeah, exactly. So this goes back to, and we'll talk about this too, because this is another key component of this whole whole discussion. Right. Yes, we entered into this debate because we were talking about Line Six using Marshall and Fender name, and then Marshall and Fender getting pissed. And this really harkens back to the idea that the Line Six, the original stuff when it first came out. Everybody was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to have to buy a 1958 Super Lead Plexi. Right. Or I'm not going to have to buy a Deluxe Reverb, right. uh, a 65 Deluxe Reverb or whatever. And and it, that scares people. It's the same thing as when drum machines came out. And all the drummers went, oh, my God, we're going to be replaced. Yeah. So Which did not happen. Fender, Fender and Marshall may have may have jumped the you know, shark there and sent them a letter and said, hey, please don't use their name in your, in your stuff. Right. Um, we do know, however, that they actually had a double model that they changed the name on it because uh, they felt very strongly that something was going to happen to them as a result of that. And right. so it now became one of their quote-unquote Line 6 models. And I saw the I saw the, uh, the name of it the other day, and I was kind of laughing about it just thinking about this. But the guy is so, like, anal about his intellectual property to the point – and it, uh, kudos to him. Look, intellectual property – you have the right to protect your your thoughts and stuff, but do it the legal way. Don't just threaten people with lawsuits. Get a patent, right? Um, in in his case, you know, I would I would be honored to be to be completely honest. If I was an amplifier designer or uh, an effects pedal builder or whatever, I would be honored if Line Six came to me and said, "We want to model your amplifier." Look at Bogner. He handled it well. He went to work for him for a while. He helped. Uh, he designed an amplifier that was marketed by Line Six. The, the Wagner Alchemist, which, to my understanding, was a pretty successful amplifier. Right. Now, granted, that, that deal didn't really last much longer, and I think that was because Wagner was more concerned about earning his brand name yep. um, than anything else. But, I mean, he participated in the modeling of his equipment. The the ecstasy model that they used to have, uh, he participated in the development of it and helped them tweak it to make it what he felt the ecstasy should sound like. Right. I, would be, I would be thrilled to think that I have created something so classic that the modeling guys want it, and right. they want it, and they want to make a model of it. They're not Dumble. This is no. exclusive. This is for yep. no one but the snobs that I build for. I didn't say snobs. They're not snobs. 
But the reality is that's that's kind of the way it gets perceived. Well, once you get up to that point, there is a little bit of cork sniffing. Um, Joe Bonamassa said it um, when he said, I know people, here comes the emails because people want to put down Bonamassa, but I'm not putting him on a pedestal. What I'm saying is he was he when he talks about the instruments that he chooses and his choices of uh, of equipment, he said that there's that last two percent. You know, I've got the ninety eight percent covered. I just want that last two percent. And each I of believe that, they call that diminishing return. That's right. And he said that. <laughs> he said that himself. He said, and I've got huge diminishing returns when it comes to getting that last couple percent. He goes, I don't recommend, you know, I think I'm I'm skewing his words a little bit, but not by much, where he was trying to say, I don't recommend people go out and get a 1959 Les Paul. He says, because not all of them are the same. And the difference yeah. between you and me, now he's, you know, it sounds egotistic, but it is true. The difference between you and me is, you know, I'm Joe Bonamassa, so I can go out and try eight of them and pick one. Where I, And someone will loan me may, one. That's right. And <laughs> when I go to England to do my gigs, Bernie Marsden loans me his... <laughs> you know, yeah, I get to take the beast out. You exactly, know? literally the beast. Which you yeah. know, even even Gibson had a heck of a time getting their hands on just so they could um, CT it and run it through MRIs and everything else. Yeah. So yeah, and Dumble, you know, to me, I mean, I listen to other folks. Um, obviously, I've never played a Dumble. Well, not obviously, but I have never played a Dumble, and I've never really cared to play a Dumble. <clears throat> because I'm not looking for that last two percent. I don't go into the studio when I did when I did my uh, my own recordings, and I did do it. I did it at home recordings, um, and they get a little airplay, um, you know, locally in the uh, stations down here. But it was back when you could still get a you could still walk up to a DJ and say, "Can you play this at your two o'clock, you know, two a.m. show and get a little bit of time?" Um, yeah. Where mm, now you're you can't do that. They but their arms are tied. A DJ is nothing but a person that sits there and makes sure that the the feed is run from whoever. Uh, You're paying for the personality with the DJ now. The, right. the DJ is nothing but a voice that talks to people. Absolutely. You know, and in my day, a DJ was more than that. They had power. They had power yeah. you wouldn't believe because they could spin a record. And um, some of the DJs were talking about how you know, Rush became popular. You know, everybody wonders, how does a nine-minute song get play? They said, well, we got to go to the bathroom <laughs> sometime. And some of those bathroom yeah. breaks need to take more than four or five minutes. So here's where... That the was back l- before they recorded the DJ and, and just played them back. <laughs> That's right. So the, the, the um, time that they'd spend in the bathroom, that was when the long version of American Pie or um, Hey Jude or, you know, stuff like that got played. They were called bathroom songs or something like that. They call them toilet songs or bathroom songs, depending on yeah, where they, you were. Some, some divisive name. <laughs> yes. And, and it was true. It was not because it was a great song at that time. They weren't doing it because they thought it was a great song. They were doing it because, hey, I need 10 minutes. I need to be away from the mic. And we, we can't, can't have dead time, especially not yeah. during the day. Or if they're going to do some blow or something while they're on. No. Yeah, that never happened. <laughs> that never that, happened. That Come on. They were yeah, all right. like WKRP in Cincinnati. They were so Yeah, innocent. sure. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, so, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about cork sniffing. So, um, let's 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 talk about choices in gear. We talked about the the gear we've had in the past. Let's talk about what we have. So, I I play um very simply. I play um a uh, Gibson uh, 
Les Paul standard. It is a gold top pearl, which is a, a limited edition, but it's no different from any other Les Paul standard or Gibson Les Paul standard that's um, got uh, Burst Bucker Pro 3 and 2s um, in the um, neck and bridge. Um, it's got the push-pull, so I can do the I can do coil, and it is a coil tap, not a coil split. So, Dave, you know what the difference is, correct? Uh, I've only ever actually had a, a split. The split basically runs one coil to the ground. That's the, the tap. The tap does it differently. I'm, I'm not exactly sure the tactical uh, explanation, but the tap is supposed to be more accurate to what a true single coil sounds like. Actually, uh, the difference. Yeah, a, a, a tap is more like a P90 because a tap still has humbucking characteristics um, to remove that hum. Where a split, truly, just like you said, it grounds out one of the coils, um, uh, and the other coil goes out. Um, um, so, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but but doesn't PRS use uh, the the tap? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's my thought. Yeah, most places. So if you they, want to try one, taps. try try a PRS. <laughs> That's right. Most places do taps because most people, when they are humbucker people and they're looking for a single coil sound, it's they, they want to say they're looking for a Fender sound. They're actually looking for that P90, that PAF yeah. um, sound or P90 sound, um, which are two different things. Um, and then uh, the um, uh, it also has a uh, push-pull for phasing, which I find useless. I know there are people out there that like that. It's got that quote-unquote yeah, Peter Green phase no, thing. I, I think it sounds, like, it sounds like crappy AM radio from the 70s personally. The only time it really works out, Jim, in my estimation, is when you have a guitar like Brian Mays that has all the switching options. Correct. Because he does do some things with phasing that are very interesting. Mm -hmm. And actually, I believe one of his signature sounds is that that being able to switch to phase. But the so. difference between his version of that and what Gibson has done, which is what happened with Peter Green's guitar, um, which, from what I understand, it, it, the, the story gets taller as it goes down the line. It was actually an accident. The guy wasn't supposed yeah. to put him in, you know, s switched phased. He did. Correct, and it correct. had a weird sound. So we used it for a couple songs. It was not this, the Peter Green sound. It was Peter Green on like one song or some solo he did or something um, that was yeah. made famous. But anyway, um, the, uh, um, the other coil uh, does what they call um, uh, a blow switch is is uh one of the one of the choices which is um so if i pull the coil tat or the if i push pull um the tone for the bridge pickup it blows the um, bridge pickup straight to the uh um, output jack doesn't have any tone doesn't have the volume control in the way it's a supposedly it's a direct wiring at that point from the bridge pickup yeah. to the output jack. i mean it's still it's still going across the lugs of the pot but Right. Basically, it's like physical wire. Correct. Correct. And so I, you know, it, it's one way to get to your lead while you're sitting there like, and the only time I really use something like that is, um, is during a cover of like, um, Wonderful Tonight, where mm -hmm. um, I need to get that uh, sound, but it's not as woofy as I'd like, because obviously it's the bridge pickup, which if I had the HP models, the HP model, you can make a choice and you could have that be the neck pickup. Um, so mm. we but, could probably get that modded in if you wanted yeah, it. Yeah. And I could, it's, it's literally, um, in the HP it's dip switch 
for me, it would be to solder the that direct connection to a different point. But for, I just don't yeah. care. I just don't care. Not, it's uh, not even that useful. Yeah. I, I use it so little. It's like, uh, and then halftime, I forget. And I just throw my, what I do is I turn the bridge pickup up a little bit and throw the pickup selector into the bridge and then play, or I mean, neck, play it yeah. and then throw it back to middle. And, you know, that way it gets a, um, a lighter sound and goes acoustic and whatever. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so I use that. Um, and then my Gibson SG standard, which is just a Gibson SG standard. It's got 57 classic pickups in it. Um, and I just started using that. So how it will work on stage will be a question of, uh, it's first time out. I've understood, you know, I've never played an SG live, so that'll be, a never own an SG. So this is, this is new for me. And I have actually huge- played one live. I am a huge Angus Young fan. You've got me over. You've got me on that one because I have never played one live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, um, um, anyway, so that goes to um, a uh, compressor into the front end of my amplifier, um, and then I have uh, two effects that are in a loop. That I have a looper. Um, it's a single channel looper, and all it does is either in or out for my two effects. One is a booster, and one is a delay digital delay and it's that very small on a ping pong delay just enough to let me get um a little thicker sound during a solo and then i turn those off that's it that's all i use uh so so quick question what what uh compressor are you using i am using you know what i'm gonna get the here comes the cork sniffers getting ready to bash me now um i am just using a plain old the new tc electronics um uh box uh Forty dollar compressor, fifty dollar. Yeah, I have no, I have no, uh, nothing negative to say about that. I will say, if you're, if you want to go down the compressor route, um, I, I can point you in the direction of some, some other stuff, yeah. uh, some really good ones. In fact, actually, that Keeley compressor is, is really good. Honestly, um, the Keeley is the only other one that I kind of have in mind. If I ever, when I replace that, I say if, when, you know, we all replace pedals. Yeah, it's going to happen. And if yeah. it breaks, you get something else. Yeah, so, and I'm, I'm uh, thinking that's going to be my compressor. I like the Exotic SP a lot. I had um, that. It, I was not crazy about it. I thought it mm. over-compressed me. I had a lot of trouble with a humbucker. I had a lot of trouble yeah. dialing it in. Um, and when I got it dialed in, I had to take... I literally had to put duct tape over the darn thing to keep it from... Moving. Yeah, because it, they, you know, with small controls, number one, yep. number two is the fact that it doesn't have a ton of control, and that's nope. usually everybody's complaining about. I yep. use a, a four knob compressor that I got from a local shop. They actually build them there, uh, and it's it's a heavily modified version of the Keeley uh, the Keeley four knob, the yep. original one, uh, yep. which I forget what they call that compressor, but the workstation, um, which is which is no, but way before that, uh, oh. like like uh, early two thousands compressor they made, the one that was real popular. Oh um, yeah, before he but they made kind of almost ran his own company into the ground. <laughs> yeah, before he got into his his yeah. whole mess. But um, yeah. yeah, so the four knob compressor that I have is because it's that his design was derivative of the Ross. This is a little bit more uh, beyond that. It, it's it's more a little bit more in the more studio direction than the Ross compressor. Or then the uh, the Keeley four knob derivative. It's just um, funny so, to hear somebody modding a mod, because that guy was famous yeah. for mods first. I remember a guitar player I played with in two thousand two thousand one. He had sent his um, 
uh, what was the distortion pedal that Keeley was famous for modding. He sent it off to Keeley to get it modded. It was an overdrive pedal. And I want to say it was a blues driver or something like that. It was something very basic. And he sent it off to Keeley to get it modded. And it took like a year and a half to get it back. Okay, so I, I interrupted you. You do you want to go on some more about uh, what you're using? Because oh, you've got no. some other guitars. And it, it, no, and then that was no. Then I use two. I have two Marshall DSL 40Cs. One has, um, uh, as you know, one has a vintage 30, eight ohm um, British vintage 30, and the other one um, has a uh, 7080. The 7080, yeah. The the stock 16 ohm 7080. Yeah. That's it. Um. Okay, so. I, I guess I'll talk about what I what I have what I'm using right now. Basically, I have I have two rigs right now. Um, and this is probably going to change. Uh, and it may start very soon. Uh, I have a Gibson SG that I bought. Uh, it's a 26. I think it's 2016 T. What year is it? It's 2017 this year. It's the prior year. So it's 2016 T. Yeah. Uh, it's a T stands for traditional. If you're not aware of how Gibson does their models, yeah. um, it's actually the first Gibson I've ever owned. Uh, I bought this guitar because I have an intense love for late 60s psychedelic music, specifically The Doors, and uh, Robbie Krieger has always been like a big influence on my playing and the way I think about guitar, and I've wanted one for probably two or three years, and I finally just got to the point, I was looking at PRSs, I was going to get a Mira for a while, and then I finally just said, you know what, to hell with it, I'm going to get an SG. Mm -hmm. So I went to Chicago Music Exchange, I found a floor model which had never been opened, it was never on the floor, that they yeah. were closing out because it was a 2016, and I snagged that bad boy for like 800 bucks. Was, you uh, are so lucky. You got that You got that new for less than I pay used. Yeah, but it was a, and I upgraded, a 2017. I upgraded the pickups in it. Um, I did yeah. not care for the stock. I guess it's a 490T and R. Uh, I, did yep, not care for, I did not care for those. So what I did is I ripped them out, and I actually had a, a friend of mine um, who I've done some gear transactions with, who actually makes pickups. He runs a company called Great Lake Custom Pickups. I don't know if he oh. want me plugging his company because I know he I know he builds for like friends and stuff. I don't know if he builds beyond that. Yeah. Um, but he he wound me some uh, uh, basically PIF clones, and he got really specific about things that I had never even thought about, which is like the magnet spacing and how different that is. Whether I was using a full the full pick guard versus the the bat wing. Yeah. Um, and all that, so yeah. Because you said I got something a really about good the choice with your batman. You said something about your yeah. Batwing. Okay, so I have the full size pickguard. I don't know if that's the one they call a batwing or not. Yes, I think yeah. the batwing is the partial pickguard. No, yours um, is the yours but, is the batwing, the one that that looks like it's okay, got so two, I have, two bat wings. Where yeah, I could see that. All right, yeah. so so I, I'm a big Batman fan, so that makes me happy. Yes, um, me too. So, but I didn't get so, that. One. <laughs> So yeah, I got the full size pick guard, the one that covers everything, and it was introduced in the late '60s. Yep. yep. Um, my understanding was that pick guard was designed because they changed the, uh, they changed the, uh, the, I know they actually changed the angle of the neck slightly. Yep. But the main thing was that they changed the joint. Yes. Um, and when they changed the joint, they had to cover it up, so they made the bigger pick guard. Now there are some issues with the bigger pick guard. Uh, for one thing, I like the aesthetics of it. That's part of the reason why I chose it, but also because. Um, it gives a certain vibe because of the way that the bridge pickup is mounted. Yep. In a typical ring configuration like you get on a Les Paul, the bridge pickup is flat to the strings. Yep. Uh, in this case, because of the way it's mounted in the pickguard, it actually sits slightly where the where the uh, magnets that are closest to the uh, I guess the the uh, bridge. It, it's it, those are a little bit farther away from the string than the magnets that are in the front. The, That's the correct. Front core. Yep. So 
because of that, it does give the guitar a little bit different vibe. Actually, I would say it gives a little bit more a telecaster feel, yep. um, at least in terms of its tonality. Yeah, I have to agree uh, with that. Yeah, it's a good looker. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it as I'm sitting here talking about it and just thinking yeah. about it. Like, I want to take that down and play. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a Heritage Cherry, for yeah. those of you that really like the uh, the color descriptions. And uh, I have a, a, a one of Ed Chu's straps. Uh, Ed Chu runs a company called uh, Rod Iron Leather that is specifically for that guitar uh, yep. color-wise and also because I needed to have a little bit longer um, strap because of the way that the uh, – the, uh, the the uh, strap hanger is on the back of it. Yeah, remind me to um, uh, look at that because um, I have a heritage cherry as well. It would be nice to have a strap that was made uh, with that in mind. Yeah, I did black. Basically, it's just black leather, mm-hmm. um, and it's not it's not truly black. It's a real dark brown, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it really offsets the guitar. When I well, I'll send you a picture of it yeah. so you can see it. I mean, it lo- looks nice. And I wouldn't do it any other way because it because it really because I had the black pick guard and everything like it really sets it off. Um, that being said, that's my that's the instrument I'm using in Black Death Doctors. Um, it is probably going to be a keeper for me. I don't foresee myself selling it. Uh, I my other guitar I won't sell. It's a GNL S500. That's one I lusted after for a really long time. Uh, finally brought myself into a store that where I could custom order one and I got one with all the specs I wanted. It's um, Ash body, uh, clear finish. It's got a satin tint, satin vintage tint neck, mm-hmm. um, which was a new thing for that year. They they hadn't done that before. Uh, Love the satin the necks. Love biggest frets I could get on it, um, and it's uh, I don't know what the radius is offhand. It's their it's their standard radius, and I know this because I went and looked at my paperwork. I was going to order another one, and I went and looked at my paperwork, and I went. I don't remember ordering that radius. And I'm like, oh, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Like, I'll just order another one like that one. That's fine. <laughs> but I, I, I haven't ordered another one yet. I will I will eventually mm-hmm. um, because that is my main axe for doing like most of my – if I was going to go out to an open mic, I'd probably take that with me. Um, yeah, there's although, a better chance that if it fell off of a mic stand – or I mean if it fell off of a uh, stand, it would not break. Or at least permanently. It's, it, it's not so much that. Actually, you know what really does it for me? If you go to a, if you go to, a, and this is something that gigging musicians I think about a lot, security. Everybody knows who Gibson and Fender are, but nobody knows who the hell GNL is. If you're not I, a guitar player, there's very little chance your guitar is going to get stolen. <laughs> after you get done with your rig rundown, we definitely should talk about security. Yeah. So okay. So um, I, my pedal board is probably where things start to get a little crazy. Um, I use, uh, I, I had a much bigger pedal board. I actually had a full size temple audio trio that was loaded to the gills. I had more pedals than I could possibly know what to do with. And I started looking back at pictures and I was like, I don't even remember owning that pedal. I sold most of that stuff a couple months back. Um, I'm running right now, uh, a Jerry Cantrell wah from Dunlop, um, an Ottawa from Boss, the the current one the dynamic wall and then i have the uh, es8 switching system i have uh, an ep booster that actually runs in front of the board more on that in a moment um and then i have uh, two two other pedals that i'm extremely fond of that, that run out in front of the amp and then the rest is in the loop is that i have a chase bliss brothers uh and i have the chase bliss warped vinyl now core component of my sound 
it, it's just, you know, nobody on the this listing this has probably heard me play before. Uh, I love Robin Trower, and so I was a big Univibe guy. Like, I had to have Univibe. I had, I've had several um, over the years. Uh, I had Deja Vibe for a while. The, the, I had the big one, the MDV2, the full treadle thing that was just massive. I actually just sold that uh, recently. I had the Viscous Vibe from TC Electronics. I've had, uh, I know I've had others. But anyway, the Warp Final, what I like about it is I can get vibey sounds out of the chorus on that thing. And I can, and it's got presets, so I don't have to just use it as that. And since it's MIDI controllable, I can use my ES8 to switch into the different presets and get some different stuff going on. So if I want to use a clean chorus and those kind of things, it doesn't have to be the typical Univibe sound. And then uh, for the for the dry pedal, the Brothers is basically the same affair. I, it's got um, boot, two different boosts, two different drives, and two different fuzzes, and you can stack them or run them in parallel mm -hmm. uh, in any configuration. And it has a mix control, and of course it's MIDI controllable, so you can set up uh, presets and stuff, and then use that, that in co uh, combination with your your amplifier and all that to get the sounds you want. Uh, in the in my amps loop, I run a DD500 and uh, the Digitech Supernatural. Not particularly fond of the Supernatural. It was a means to an end. I needed a reverb pedal, didn't have one, and uh, it was inexpensive and sounded really good. I actually got it right as they were being discontinued. Yeah. Um, and then the uh, DD500, what an excellent stomp box, man. Uh, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people are real big on the Strymon stuff, but the DD500 is cheap compared to the Strymon stuff. It's it's I think it's, what, $100 or $50 less yeah. than uh, the comparable Strymon, and it sounds just as good. Yeah. And it has just as many options and parameters available to it. MIDI control, two presets with, uh, with an AB switch on it. It's got a looper built in, all that good stuff. Basically everything you'd want out of a delay box. Yeah. The thing is, the, the only thing I don't like about footprint's a little large. Uh, yeah. That's fine. That's fine. You need a bit. I want to be able to actually get my foot on the individual switches. It's one of my gripes about Chase Bliss. Is they use a Hammond 1590B or whatever the regular Hammond size enclosure, and it's two foot switches right next to each other. It's insane. Yeah, it's difficult. Uh, but the, well, but the way he's got it set up, usually your your left switch is a tap tempo, so you could hit it once and just leave it. Yeah. No one cares. So you can kind of get away with it. Um, power supplies. I'm running two Voodoo Lab power supplies, the Pedal Power 2 Plus, and uh, I think the Mondo or something. It's another one. And then those are holdovers from the other board where I had a lot more pedals. Yeah. And of course, the ES8. Can't say enough good things about it. Uh, you want a digital, you know, effects system because you can hit one switch and change everything. You can do it with the ES8. I've got it set up so it can control both my amplifiers, change channels. Uh, and also turn on and off effects as needed. So it's super useful for, I have basically five foot, five foot switches assigned on there that allow me to get my five basic sounds that I use. And then, of course, I can set up additional patches. But that allows me to change my amplifier tones as well as the, the uh, floor. Now, here's where things get weird. Because you're using a complicated system like that, you need a snake. You need yeah, extra yeah. cables. There's a lot of money involved in it. And this is part of the reason why uh, I'm looking at uh, alternatives right now. But then again, so... Um, that goes out from my pedal board yep. uh, to either a Mark V mm -hmm. or a P PRS Sanzera. The Mark V I have is the 25, the little bitty one. Yep. Um, that I, I can't say enough good things about that amp. I love the cheap, Mark Vs. I really cheap, do. Cheap. Cheap. Yep. That, that's the thing. Like it's expensive. It's still, but it's it's still a Mesa Boogie. But yep. compare Mesa Boogie, and and this is what I don't get. People put Mesa in the same category as Marshall and Fender. It's a small company. That's right. There's like 20 people working there. Yep. Yep. It's very well, boutique. 
Yes, yes, very much so. So yeah. I would rather I would rather put them more in the category of like Doctor Z or somebody like that. That's right. Um, who is who they perceive themselves to be competing with? Yeah. I mean, hell, uh, even Doctor Z, they came out with the EMS, which is their martial in a box. Well, Mesa did their uh, the Triple Crown, which is kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, I I was actually evaluating both of those when I got my Sans Era, which actually happened to be significantly cheaper and sound just as good. Um, but yeah, so Mesa, I, I, I was one of the guys that would sit around and say, Mesa's just overpriced and it's got too much crap going on. There's too much stuff in it. It's so hard to dial in. Quit it. If you're that guy, quit it. I, to be honest with you, Mesa's are super easy to dial in. You just have to wrap your head around it. Once you figure it out, it's all physical knobs. There's no programming involved. It's not that kind of thing, right. and it doesn't really take that much much effort to figure it out. Um, no. Now, my cabinet situation, I have a. Uh, this will segue into other topic. I have a Mesa 112 recto, yeah, and then I have a Carbon 412. Ooh, from like the late, from like the late 80s. You uh, know, cat- so I'm young enough that I used to get the Carbon um, catalog, and every year or six months, I don't remember what it was. In the early 80s and late 70s, I would get this big, thick catalog of guitars and basses, and they had they had everything, though. They had mixers, and they had power amps, oh, yeah. and they had guitar amps, and they had bass amps, and they had everything. Yet, I didn't know a single person that played one. Even back then, because Joe Walsh was not one of their um, artists yet. That didn't happen until way later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I always wondered... Well, I never see one. And uh, I didn't see a Carvin until I was stationed in San Diego. And even then, I only saw one. Yeah, and they have a – that's where they were based, wasn't it, in that air, that region, and Southern California? Just this morning – I didn't get a chance to tell you that. Just this morning, uh, music go round Virginia Beach uh, in the um, Lynn Haven uh, Mall area got a Carvin V3 – the guitar amp. Yeah. Is it V3 or VM3? And um, so the the smaller Satriani head um, and or uh, combo. Mm-hmm. And um, they got the um, they got a Kiesel guitar. Okay. And it was the first so it time like somebody turned in their whole rig. Like. Yeah. <laughs> it was the first time I've ever seen a Kiesel. And I'm wondering if the person was like, oh, no, now the company's going under. I got to get rid of my stuff. You know, I don't know if, if that just happened to be yeah. at this time or what. But I just thought that was funny. And, you know, people, you know, so uh, a lot of my Facebook friends and, and the folks that I um, communicate with, um, they were like, Carvin's gone out of business. So what? <laughs> I mean, Carbon Audio, Carbon Audio. Let's just make sure that people understand. We yeah. know that the guitar side okay. is not going out of business. Yeah. But the well, amplifiers are going. Don't, for people who don't know that. So Carbon, uh, let's go, well, I'll talk about the company history a little bit. Yeah. Because I, I actually know, I know quite a bit about them. Um, I've re- read the interviews with, with the guy that's running Kiesel and stuff, and he's yeah. talked about it. Now, granted, uh, Carbon's got kind of a bad rap. It, it just depends on who you talk to. But anyway, um, they – they were making a lot of money in the 70s and 80s doing like install, like audio installations and stuff. And they had a guitar business as part of that. So their big thing was to make amplifiers, mixers, and all that stuff. Um, one of the kids was really into guitars. And so they kind of let him go nuts. He ran the guitar division. 
And then they started to not see eye to eye, him and his brother. And so that's why Kiesel happened, because they split up. And so they took all the guitar market, and which is a little weird because you think maybe they take the amplifier business too. They didn't want the amplifier business. That's weird. He just basically said he wanted to make guitars. Yeah, but was that because – okay, so it was a personal decision, not one because, oh, I'd have to take this portion of the audio with me. It wasn't based on that? Okay. No, I think it was actually more or less like a family thing where they basically – the brother was like, listen, we need to get out of the guitar business. It's eating all our capital. In order for us to, to really survive as a company, we really need to we really need to focus on what we've you know made money on in the past. Right. Um, now, so what ended up happening was uh, they took – they adopted the name because I guess originally it was Kiesel Audio a long, yes. long time ago and then yes. they changed to Carvin. Isn't that the family so now, name, Kiesel? Yes, Kiesel is actually the family name. Carvin is actually uh, an amalgam of the two kids' names. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. It's my understanding. So they just combined them. So I don't know what they are offhand. Yeah, it makes Maybe sense. Maybe Carl and Marvin or something. Yeah. I <laughs> it, 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 no, I seriously. And, yeah. and that's that's allegedly what happened. So now um, Kiesel is still trucking. They're making decent quality guitars from what I understand and uh, Carvin is no longer in business now I kind of wonder if that stems from the fact that him splitting off into Kiesel was more or less him seeing the writing on the wall and realizing we can't sustain the audio side of this business anymore and right. if he wants to go do it fine he can go do it but where we're making all our money right now is guitars so I'll take this business and go over here I wonder if that was his thing because you know, okay, so let's let's talk a minute about another company that has a similar situation, PV. So yeah. Hartke PV, he's um, is that his name? Hartke Hart. Hart it's Hart. That's no, Hartley. Hartley. Hartley PV. Hartke yeah. is a company. That's right. Yeah, um, that's a base company. Oh, by the way, um, it was Bad Cat amplifiers you were thinking of with uh, Bonnie Ray Bad Cat. Um, no, and- no, I, no, it wasn't. Uh, it was uh, Kelly. Um, something Kelly amplification or something. Mark Kelly or oh oh oh. <laughs> They're owned by uh, by Sir now, I think. Well, okay, Morgan. yeah, yeah. Morgan I, I, Kelly. I know that right now she's at she's at Bad Cat. Um, oh no, I know. Yeah, 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 for sure. So I didn't know if maybe she switched, but um, anyway. So uh, all I know is, um, if I remember right, she is the first woman to have a Fender uh, signature guitar. I think that's an important point to make. Um, anyway, so. Uh, yeah, I know that uh, PV is do, is in a similar situation. So they were huge because of their PA equipment, not so much their guitars. And if you've noticed, they are doing um, uh, guitar, or I mean, more amplifiers and PA and less of the uh, uh, guitar market. You don't really see a lot of PV guitars get, getting touted. I mean, they're out there. I'm just saying that I think their last big foray and last big hurrah was that at TS 1000 or something that that automatically tuned itself. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, the name of the amplifier company that I was thinking of, Jim Kelly. Jim I Kelly. Just, That's I, right. I was Googling That's while we right. were talking. And um, you know what? I should have known that because uh, I listened to another podcast, um, uh, the, the Guitar Wank podcast. Yeah. And uh, um, Scott Henderson mentioned mentions Jim Kelly amplifiers all the time, all the time. Yeah, they're 
they have a kind of a cult following. But anyway, yep. yeah, you were talking about um, their their auto tuning guitar. Is that what yep. you're? Yep, the auto tune one thousand or something like that. And it yeah, it it even though you know what's weird, it flopped, but it was awesome. That's what I don't get. It had physically, it would tune to where you wanted. It would literally the tuners uh, 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 to where you wanted. So they physically got there and stayed in tune. If they detected it was going out of tune, they tuned. Not like the Gibson ones that auto-tuned to the wrong place. <laughs> That's what everybody's complaint was with them, um, the early ones. Uh, and then, yeah. you know, and of course, Gibson Gibson screwed up with the first iteration of that, which I think was in, was it 2012 or 2013, when they came out with the robotic tuner guitars. And they said, hey, guess what? We've got these robotic tuner guitars and you can't tune them manually. You can only use this yeah. USB device. <laughs> so you have to that have a computer it. with you. That was the dumbest thing. <laughs> that was absolutely ridiculous. And yeah, well, you know, Jim, part of the re- way I look at this is they're inventing something that we don't need. Yeah, it's a convenience yeah. thing. It would be nice to have a guitar that tunes itself. But the reality is that's part of our skills as a musician is to understand how to sweeten the tuning or whatever when you're when you're tuning up. I mean, I know for at least in my ex- experience, when I play with keys, uh, when I play with a keyboard player or a pianist, yep. I will oftentimes tune tune, tune everything around that G and tune it slightly flat or whatever just to fit what they're doing. Correct. Um, it's just a little subtle thing that you can do to make yourself sound a little bit better and stand out a little bit more. Matter of fact, um, it only really works if you have certain voicings, but yeah. yeah as, a, as a matter of fact, um, when I was a kid. Um, the way to tune my guitar, if I was playing with a with a pianist, was to have the pianist give me an A. Yeah. I played to, yeah. I tuned to A, or I'd get have him give me a C, and I would fret the A to C, and I would tune to that. Or if I was by myself and I didn't have my pitch pipe, those of you who don't know what a pitch pipe is, can Google it. <laughs> um, it is not something you use to smoke anything. But um, at least not, not that I used it. Yeah. <laughs> you smoke bitch with it. You blew into it. You didn't suck out of it. But um, I, I can imagine what you would get out of it. But anyway, uh, it, and you could have a chromatic one or you could have like I did. It was it was just six, <laughs> the six strings. But if I didn't have my pitch pipe with me, I put a song on that I knew like uh, American Pie. I knew it was in G. So I would go a long, long. Okay. Ding, 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 ding. Okay. That's, that's G. <laughs> There's my one. Now I can get to, from there. Along Sounds with crazy, that, doesn't it? And it would, no, because uh, I okay, so when I was in high school, I played trumpet. Actually, mm-hmm. it was before high school. I was in middle school. I played trumpet, and you get the, one of the first notes. You, I guess you're either a, a C natural or a G natural, depending on how you, you know, what your musculature is and how you normally blow. Uh, I happened to be a C natural, so that meant that I could. The first note I would blow out of a trumpet when I would put it up to my lips would be a C. Yep. Now, because of that, I know what a C sounds like. And yeah. I have I have successfully in band situations pulled a C out of my ass and tuned my instrument mm-hmm. and gotten along with everybody else and not been horrendously out of tune. Yeah, so, without a tuner, without a headstock. Yeah. You know, you know, that's a pretty damn good feeling. <laughs> it, it wasn't until I think the year 2002 or three. That I got a Boss TU2 that I, I, I spent the money on an electronic tuner. Before the t- that. The TU2? Yeah, before that. And, and the only reason I got the TU2 was because, and, and later I found out it was the standard. Whether you were Zach Wild 
or Dimebag Daryl. Yep. Or you were Billy Joe Jim Bob in country western band. Um, yeah. In, in the local everybody pub. had that thing. Everybody had one. Every, I've never owned one. Every rig rundown. <laughs> you are missing out. One of the best tuners in the world. I'm I'm being serious when I tell you one of the best tuners in the world. And yet, Kev, or uh, Wampler doesn't like it. But um, I, I used to polytune. Yeah, I used it. Well, I, I went Fight to a polytune <laughs> for a while. Yep, I went to a polytune for a while, and the truth is, I went right back to the boss. I, I got a black. I got the black polytune, the full size one, and yep. I have to say, it's the easiest freaking thing to see in a dark room. Yeah, and, it's, and that's the only reason I like it. Yep, and and I got the boss to you too for the very same reason because I can see that thing. You know, you play a festival and, and oh, yeah, we're going to have cover for you guys, you know, and then you're out there and you are getting a sunburn because <laughs> they said you don't yeah. cover and you don't. And um, uh, because God knows if you put uh, um, sunscreen on it, all it's going to do is drip down you and into your guitar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, you're out there out, out of cover and I'm looking at bright light all over the place. I can see that to you. Um, the boss TU2 and now TU3. Um, oh, in, I was going to say you use the TU3 now, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I upgraded. Not because it's not because it's better. My TU2 finally gave up the ghost after 15 years of almost yeah, every single weekend and several times a week. That's a testament to boss reliability. It um, is. That's for sure. It is. So. If, you, if you can have something like that. And, you know, um, I think that, you know, later, uh, in a later date, we can talk more about companies that are giving us things we don't want because yeah for sure that's that's a that's a topic all of its own but anyway you know right. like i said pv you know they they um uh they're sitting there and they're going oh yeah you know what um we're gonna put all of our efforts into well you got you can't blame them and we're gonna put it into the stuff that makes us money and yeah uh See, here's the here's the issue. Okay, so we'll we'll talk about PV for for another minute here, and then we'll get back to Carvin. Yeah. So here's the issue I have with PV and and their situation. Okay, as a brand, PV never really built themselves as being like the pro musician brand, at least no. not to my generation. No. And they never. When did. I was growing up, when you thought PV, you know what you thought of? A little PV Rage, fifteen watt amplifier. You know, um, but you know when I grew up. Um, now I was grown by this point, more, more or less. But you saw Leonard Skinner. What was behind them? Yeah, PV. 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 Yeah. And what was behind Thirty Eight Special? PV. There were a lot of the PV Bandit is one of the most popular still, one of the most yeah. popular. And and um, you know what? That goes back to what are companies doing? Giving us stuff we don't want, so we can go next episode. We should talk about what companies are giving us we don't want we don't want yeah them. so yeah so carbon yeah uh carbon is closing it's there's Car carbon audio so yep. we, we kind of deviated from that but carbon audio uh for, for in terms of guitars um what it really affects us with is uh, they made a they made a couple of amplifiers that were pretty popular yep. uh one is the the v3 yep. um which is basically from my i've never played the v3 but what i understand is that it's basically a triple rectifier uh, with yeah. some different stuff on it, like I don't think I don't think it has the ability to use different types of rectification. Um, I know the uh, the other amp that I'm more familiar with that I've actually played is the uh, the Carvin Legacy, which is the Steve Vai model. Yep. And I have to say, Carvin, when you mention their name to guitar players, 
uh, and you talk about their amps. Uh, I never really got the sense when I was talking to the people that either A, they knew what their amps sounded like, yep. or B, that they had any really good or bad reputation. It was more of a, huh, they make amps too? Yeah. <laughs> How about now, that? <laughs> that being, now, that being said, um, I became interested. I, I'm a big Steve Vai fan. I'm a big Frank Zappa fan. Um, yeah, Frank it kind of goes in hand in hand, right? Too. Yeah, they're basically the same, except one is one is less concerned about making uh, jokes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> essentially. He's actually um, a pretty so, funny guy when you see his interviews, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, he is, for sure. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the, the interesting thing about that is that Vi's career with Carbon really comes back from the 80s when he was working with Frank Zappa, and they were using the Carbon X100B yep. um, he head. Yep. And then, of course, Carbon Caps. And there are pictures of Vi's 80s rigs where he's got Marshalls and Mesas and Carbon Caps, which yeah. is kind of interesting. Um, yeah. But the X100Bs, uh, I've, I've actually had the, the uh, good fortune of actually playing through one of those. Um, they're an interesting amp. Uh, it's got some crazy EQ stuff going on. Um, there was definitely a little bit of we're watching you, Mesa, and we're doing what you're doing kind of stuff there. Uh, lots of EQ options. Uh, this is several years ago, so I'm trying to do my best to recall. Uh, it's it's more of a, a vintage style amplifier. That th think like a modded JCM 800. A little bit a little bit more gain than a JCM 800, um, but in that territory with a really flexible EQ. Um, I don't know that the mid range. I would consider it British. Yeah. Uh, a little bit tight. A little bit tighter bass, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, good amp. Uh, I would play one. Like if I if I had to, you know, pick something up right now, and there was one sitting in the store used for three or four hundred bucks, I'd, I'd snatch it up. To yeah. so all tube, um, I, from what I understand, they're pretty well made, uh, which has been one of the gripes about Carbon that I've heard uh, repeatedly is that some of their amplifiers are leave a little less to be desired on the on the circuitry side in terms of uh, maintainability. Um, now, fast forward a couple of years ago, I became very interested in the Carbon Legacy. Uh, the legacy, from my understanding, is basically a Bogner ecstasy that Steve I brought to them and said, I, I want my custom amp to be very much in this vein. And then he had some ideas how to tweak it. And so that's yeah. how they got to the to the um, legacy line. Yeah. So the first iteration, uh, people like it. I, I think it has a, a little bit of a cult following. The second iteration, the same thing. Um, they, you know, remember, his relationship with them went on for probably 15 years. Yeah. So, Every five or so years, they would revisit this thing and and do another iteration of it. Uh, the the one I have experience with is their little lunchbox, the uh, the Legacy Three. Yep. And I and I have to say, the Legacy Three really surprised the hell out of me. Wasn't isn't, good to him. Isn't what that we... isn't that the one they put in a pedal? Yeah, that's the one that they did. The uh, they took the preamp and they put it in a pedal. I don't know if they put the power amp in there. I don't, I'm not too. No, no, yeah, but product. no, they didn't put the power amp, but they did put the preamp because Vi was talking about some of his flyaway gigs and some of his um, clinics where he wasn't able to get a V3 in there. He could take that pedal, and that pedal um, was to him. Of course, he's going to tout it. I mean, but he loved that thing, and I wonder if that's going to go. That's going to go with the amps too, and that's yeah, a good is. little pedal. I'll tell you, that thing's going to go from being like one of those. Um, pawn shop finds where you to wow people are looking for that thing i'm telling yeah, you yeah i you know what and i have to say the legacy three 
if you could snag one on their deal that's out there right now and you're looking you know around that price range for an amp you would be hard pressed to find an amp that sounds better than that now granted i've heard they got some reliability things but a good tech can take care of it that's not going to be that that big an issue um for for, for what i understand though uh or actually what i remember playing it was very much in the vein of like hot rodded marshall lead channel uh kind of like a bogner ecstasy um with maybe a little bit more top end, uh, a little bit more uh, focused upper mids than what you would get out of your typical ecstasy sound. Uh, I would say probably more to the, uh, I guess they have a red and a blue channel in the ecstasy, I think it's what it is. I would yep. say probably more to the blue channel. Yep. Uh, and if you understand how Vi actually uses it, like it kind of makes sense. He runs basically a crunchy sound and then he uses the DS1 to push it a little bit harder. Um, which is why he would want to model the blue channel and not the red channel, because the red channel is a full-on like lead gain, lead gain monster channel in an ecstasy. Right. Um, that being said, I, I honestly uh, I saw that they would drop their prices in lieu of the liquidation, and I'm like sitting there, I'm like, damn it, I wish I could buy it. I wish I could buy one right now. I'm just I'm not in a financial position to do it because they're really cool. Uh, I so what are their prices and, right now? Uh, I think they're what like seven hundred now or something. Six hundred. You used wow. to, dude, you could get the whole half stack for like under a thousand bucks. Wow. If and somebody's looking, oh. I have a four by 12 cab that they made and I want to say it's like a 1988. Mm-hmm. Uh, I picked it up from a guitar shop. Uh, actually, my local guitar shop that I shop at all the time, Good Time Music. Um, okay. They're in Streamwood, Illinois. Uh, I picked it up from them. And I got it, I think, for like two hundred bucks flat. Holy crap! For for a full tw- four twelve cab, I, I inquired what the speakers were. He said basically it was the carbon equivalent of a T seventy five, which to my ears is basically what it is. Yep. Um, I didn't have a cabinet at the time, and I was like, I want a cabinet because I want to run my combo through it. Because yep. I didn't like the speaker that was in my combo, so I took it home. Two hundred bucks, best two hundred bucks I ever spent. Completely yep. revitalized the way that I think about amplification but that being said the cabinet's not the greatest it's a little woofy um but it's but you know it sounds like a marshall like a really good marshall it's yeah. a giant cab though i mean it's it's big uh yeah. and it's hard to haul around and stuff yeah one of the uh, things that so you know um you're you're a studio guy and i'm a live guy woofy can get lost in the mix live completely oh in both in both situations yeah, yeah. And so what happens is when you're live, Woofy can help, you know, and helps out. It can help out a lot. What a lot of people you don't realize. Feel, you can feel it. That's right. You just can't hear it. That's right. That's what I was about to say. You get that sense. Um, I was just watching a rig rundown with um, Trucks, and his bass player yeah. has a, um, a bass amp or bass, what is equivalent to a speaker that he stands on just yeah. to feel his timing and his thump. Because it gets so loud on stage. I mean, you think about it. Tedeschi, I did not know Susan Tedeschi ran dimed. She has that Fender dimed. And oh, yeah. You, no. Yeah. And then you take two drummers, bass, who's running two amps and mm-hmm. uh, two heads. And, of course, um, Tedeschi's running two amps. Here comes Trucks. And he's running two. Um, uh, you were talking about the Fenders he used to use. Now he's got a. Another guy, I can't remember what the name of the of the company is, but Jazz or Yaz or something like that or As. It's, a, it's some A-Z-Z. I know A-Z-Z is in there. 
and um, he's uh, he and she both have one, but she runs that fender dimed out with a uh, you know close mic'd, and essentially she's got plexi in front of it so that she can um, you know keep the stage volume relatively low because she's got to sing, but she's got another one of those AZZ things. And didn't you say Derek was switching his SG for some I, reason? I think Derek Trucks just switched to PRS. The, the amps, uh, he's still using SGs, but he, cause he was responsible for the HXDA amp, yeah. which is the, which is the Hendrix, uh, Dwayne amp, the yep. Hendrix Dwayne Almond amp. Yep. That thing is fucking incredible. Pardon yep. my, pardon my language. Sorry. I, we'll, I, I'll bleep it. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Um, I honestly, like if I had three grand laying around, there'd be no other amp for me. Like oh. that, that's, that's exactly what I want. But uh, yeah, that's a monstrous piece. And I, my understanding was he was using that in the studio and he loaned it to PRS so that they could build him a couple. And so I think he's actually using the HXDA, maybe slightly customized for his needs. But because yeah. um, PRS does that, they, they actually have an artist relations group that will customize equipment to what the artist needs. Yeah. Um, but that being said, uh, uh, Carvin. You know, I'm I'm actually gonna miss uh, having them around because, at least in terms of the uh, the amplifier market, because where else am I gonna get snakeskin vinyl? If I want to get if I want to get a snakeskin Tolex cabinet, nobody I could else. And I could have gotten it. I could have gotten it. You know, Honey Boo Boo, I heard is gonna come out on her own, so we're, we'll be watching <laughs> for that um, the Honey Boo Boo um, episode. But now we're coming up on the hour, so or we've just come over the hour, so um. We're going to wrap up this podcast. We'll do um, one more week. And one of the things that I want to mention that you guys should be watching for is we will be doing a string challenge. So what we're going to do is we're going to challenge you as much as we're going to challenge each other and we're going to challenge ourselves. And that is we're going to use four sets of strings on our guitars. We're going to use the same guitar, the same gauges of strings, just different companies. So we're going to go to the bargain basement of Ernie Balls. Ernie Ball, right? Um, we're going to yeah. use the Super Slinky. Yeah. Um, I know yeah, there's a, those of you out there. <laughs> no, man, those are really got me excited. I am so excited now. I can't wait. Um, but let me tell you something that got me through a lot of years. So Super Slinkies are still used by a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, so Ernie Ball Super Slinkies. We're also going to use the Didario NYXL. That's November Yankee X-Ray Lima for you ex-military <laughs> type or ham radio folks. Um, I don't know what and uh, NY must is that New York? I don't know. Extra yeah, large. Yeah, something? they're they're New York and they're, and they're, I don't know what the XL means, but extra life, I think. Yeah, maybe it is extra life. We're gonna extra do that. Seventy or yeah, yeah, extra. Yeah, that that must be. I'm sure that's what they're going for. But those are um, uh, those are what we're gonna do as well. And we're also going to use a set of string joy strings, which are um, touted as handmade. Um, but still use a machine and process. And we're going to use, what's the name of that company? GT, which stands for Gabriel Tenorio Custom Strings. Thank you. I did not want to mispronounce it because I am terrible. Um, plus, I have an awful memory unless I write something down, which I did not take a good note for that. But we are going to use their, <laughs> their strings as well. I will be using, so you will hear me using my Gibson uh, SG. Um, I will be using it 
it at home. So I'll do a stereo recording. I will also take a recording out of my um, input to the mixer for live recordings. Um, so you'll be able to hear it in both situations um, so that you're hearing the strings. We're going to, um, I'll be using 946s, which is a mix of um, light, heavy. What are you going to be using, Dave? Uh, we plugging everything through my S five hundred. They basically, I will be doing a similar type of testing, except mine will be more uh, basically just running dry signal into uh, an audio recording workstation, and I'll be grabbing uh, the same sample clips. Uh, and I, what the way I will be doing this is what dry signal and then slightly crunchy amplifier, um, just so we can get a little bit of give and take uh i will be doing this when i first put them on and then a couple of uh days later so that we can get a little bit of break into what that feels like the main thing um though is i'm going to use in the s500 to do this test so i will be testing more the the uh, uh fender side of things and i will be running tens which i run tens on everything now a little thing to note about the, the strings i'll be purchasing before i do this um i've actually just purchased whatever they consider tens to be from their companies. I think everybody, every company kind of picks their own, like, hey, the 10 to 46, or is it 10 to 50, or is it 10 to 48? Yeah, and see, some of them, yeah, 10 to 52, 10 to 48, 10 to 46. Um, I'll be using uh, the hybrids. I was able to find the hybrid 946, or, yeah, 946 everywhere. So it's what it is, is a set of nines on the GB and E and a set of um, tens on the E, A and D. So low E, uh, A and D. So we'll be doing that same similar thing. I'll be um, uh, doing stuff uh, day one. We'll also be rating how they feel under our fingers, how we yeah. feel playing them, but we want you to rate them. But what we won't be telling you is this will go on for months, by the way. We will not tell you what strings we're using. We're not going to tell you anything about them. We are just going to say... Until the end. That's right. Here are the strings. Two weeks minimum of use. We'll show you what they feel like, sound like, and everything else in the beginning. And then at the end before we cut them off. Um, and therefore, we won't have any video because I don't want anybody to see the smile on Dave's face when he cuts those... Um, Ernie Balls off of his <laughs> off his guitar because I know he's going to look forward to that moment. I hate Ernie Balls. Like when you said we were going to do Ernie Balls, I was like, oh no. Well, we got to give everything but, a fair shake. No, right? fair shake, fair shake. Listen, I haven't had a set of Ernie Ball strings on my guitar in probably ten years. Yep. So none of these guitars that I'm going to be using uh, have ever had Ernie Balls on them. Uh, so neither of my guitars have had Ernie Balls on them. Ever. So we'll be, I, the only one that's ever had Ernie Balls on it was once I have, I usually keep a spare set in the, in the bag just in case. Um, and the, uh, uh, Paul Reed Smith had a set of Ernie Balls on it, uh, my single cut. So that's the only okay. one. And so um, that's, yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> but when I was a teen, <laughs> And I couldn't afford, I mean, I remember going. That was to, the thing, man. Yeah. I remember going to the store and buying, I need four high E strings or three G oh, yeah. strings, you know, because those are the ones I'm going to break. <laughs> and I, I remember, get... dude, I can remember going in when I first started and seeing all the strings in the string counter at the store and going, why the hell are there different brands? 
And why like, are these so much <laughs> more money? And we're going to talk about yeah. that. We will, we will have you evaluate. You will evaluate these strings. The things yeah. you will say is, how do they sound? And what are their value to you? Through that sound, what would be the value to you? Because you're gonna, right. we, the only thing subjective that we're going to have in there is what does it feel like under our fingers? Each of us will have a different way of feeling strings. And so sure. that's going to be something that, that you know, we talk to. But it's going to be truly, are we getting tone? from our strings and that's why they've got to be these tests have got to be done over weeks and it has to be done completely blindfold dave will not know what strings i'm using so even right, he won't know the answers right and i won't know what he's using so we will not be able to say you know hint oh yeah this set of strings is uh, blah 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 we're not going to do that behind the scenes we're not going to do that because we want you to trust us the companies that we are um, using are not sponsoring us. So in no, no way. We bought, we bought these with our own personal money. That's right. So. so in absolutely no way think for a minute that we are sitting there going, oh, yeah, we've got um, these. So they're better or worse. We are. And that's the other thing. Neither one of us is going to say, I like this string best. That's for Dave to do for me, you to do for me. Me to do for Dave and you to do for Dave is to give your inputs, your votes, and talk about what strings you like best. Maybe, uh, Jim, we haven't really talked about this yet, but maybe it's also good a good idea as part of this. Like maybe we check in like once a week or whatever and have a little discussion about string technology. Yeah. And just kind of gloss over some of it. I think that's a good idea. And if we could get one of the string manufacturers maybe to to talk to us and tell us a little bit about what it is that they're and their process. I mean, we don't want them to tout their strings. I mean, we don't want to become a podcast. that's about, um, uh, touting one company over the other. Gibson. Sure. sure. Um, <laughs> I just, play I, Gibson. I honestly, no, I, honestly, uh, oh, I think, oh, I think that it's a very fascinating process. Yeah. And I, and, and to be honest with you, I never really thought about it. I mean, I just buy strings. They're, yeah. They're lengths of wire. I remember the first time I, I started playing bass. I started playing bass later because it was like, we don't have a bass player. Somebody needs to step up to bass. And I just look around and I go, I know I'm going to have to do it, aren't I? I'm the only guy. You guys are not going to step down. And so um, I had to pick up the bass and, and learn to That's play That's the it. first time you go, holy crap, the strings really do make an impact. <laughs> oh, and that is really, really where you get. Um, you know, and, and I was like, Am I supposed to play? I hated flat wounds. In the beginning, I hated them. Oh, my God. Flat wounds. Have you played bass? Yes. You play? Okay. So do you. And I know the difference between flat rounds. I played flat wounds on bass. Actually, it's my preferred. But I, I'm starting to go back to, to uh, roto sound. But, yeah, flat wounds yep. I like. Yep. I used roto sounds for the longest time. But that's a guitar player going to bass. And later I yeah. went, you know what? I like this woofier tone that I'm getting with it. The only thing I couldn't get out of a set of round wounds, and I didn't do it long enough. I'm sure there's a set of strings that would do it, would give me the sustain and the mid-range that a set of um, round wounds, roto sound round wounds would give me. And I always used... Was it 45 105s? Yeah, I think it was 45 105s. And, and I think I went to 110 or 1... Because um, I played 5-string as well. So I had uh, 110 or 115. I can't remember what's after 105, but I, um, they were the same, same set of yeah. four strings with a, another string. So we're going to say goodbye for today. Um, yep. And uh, we're going to... Um, 
uh, we'd like to thank everybody. Uh, and we'll be posting um, our information in both of the forums for you guys to be able to go in and start voting. And we'll tally up votes and let's see what happens with these strings. Cool. All right. Thanks, everybody.